I think the risk for Pattinson now is if once you get pulled into a superhero cycle, it can be a little difficult to pull out of it. But if you're not careful, you become a big box office star. And it seems to me that Batman or the Batman as a character is somewhat limiting because, you know, he's already expressed pretty much all he can express by way of standing on top of a skyscraper and brooding. You know, if you're just doing more of the same in the next movie, you get a huge paycheck, but it doesn't exactly push you as an actor. Hello and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And on today's show, we're going to talk about one popcorn movie and one art house movie. The popcorn movie is The Batman, which opened to great fanfare. I think everybody I know was really interested in going to see this. And I think this is definitely a movie you should see it in the theater just for the theatricality. But Mike, where should we start with The Batman? Well, Marie, when you call it a popcorn movie, you ain't kidding. And you have time to eat a lot of popcorn during this film because of the excessive running time. So let me quickly note uh, in its favor, just by way of box office clout, this film opened extremely well, not quite as well as The Last Spider-Man, but, but really well. It has a lot of commercial presence. So it is the big picture in that sense for this season. I got to tell you right up front, I was not a happy customer and, uh, you know, I didn't want to eat any popcorn or anything. I watched every minute of it, and there are quite a few minutes to watch. So let me start off with my, my two major knocks. You know, sometimes when you start to think about a film, even before you see it, you just sort of scope it out. Basic production information can tell you a lot. For instance, in this film, what's the title of the film? It's not Batman. It's the Batman so th there's a self-importance here. There's a ponderous quality. You want to genuflect before the title, you know, and, 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 and you know, really fully appreciate it that way. So already that indicated to me, uh-oh, this is a red flag for me, at least, the Batman. The second red flag, and this has been a hobby horse I've been riding for a long time now, is a lot of these superhero movies just simply have excessive running time. You know, we know the basic story. It's, it's sequel number whatever, or reboot whatever. And we know the basic parameters. And how many hours do we need for this? I know there's a fan base that would want even more hours, more extras, more director's cuts and all that. But you know what? This is a film that has a running time of two hours and 55 minutes. And uh, you know what? To me, it felt like three hours. I mean, it just, it just really was so overly long. And in that respect, and I'll hand it back to you next, Marie, because I'm, all I'm saying are negative things at the moment. But uh, ironically, you and I are uh, taping this episode on a rainy day. And boy, does it rain a lot in this film. In, in the entire nearly three hours, there are only two or three shots we have something resembling daylight. So almost everything's taking place late at night, which is fair game for, a, you know, a, a dark night kind of movie. It's going to be, you know, dark and ominous in various ways, criminal activity, uh, you know, taking place late at night. That's all logical given. But this film goes overboard with it and almost everything takes place. And do people ever go out during the day in this movie? I don't think so. The other thing is it's always raining. I mean, constantly. And, you know, I understand the atmospherics. I understand how that can be effective. But I'll tell you, you know, after three hours of it, I wanted to raise an umbrella inside the theater. That's how I was feeling at that point. So with all those negative observations in terms of my response to the Batman, let me turn it back over to you. Well, I am in complete agreement about the runtime because, well, this is a hobby horse that I've been riding for a long time. If you're going to make me sit for more than two hours in a movie, you better really make it worth my while. And I think most films could be edited down to two hours easily. 
it's like they had so many ideas to put into this that they just couldn't bear to to cut anything. So they left it all in. And I think it's very hard to sit through a three-hour movie. I will say I did think that it flew by because I think I enjoyed this movie more than you did, Mike. I am a fan of graphic novels. So I really appreciated the way this movie kind of gave me the same experience I had watching Sin City, where there were certain shots that were just so perfectly rendered that they looked like you were looking at a graphic novel that came to life. There's a scene with, you know, like a flare of a headlight that is, you know, sort of shot in a way that you could just see it being drawn. You, you almost feel like you're turning the page of the graphic novel or the comic book. And then, of course, you know, Batman standing on the rooftop with this cape billowing, very, very much like a comic book. And then there's this wonderful scene near the end where he's leading people through, you know, a fiery hellscape. And he's got his, you know, his horns and everything. So he looks for all the world like Satan leading people out of a hellscape. Really beautifully shot and very much like something you would see in the comic book version. And I really liked the way they did that. I could have used a lot more of that and less of the, the side stories, which I thought sort of detracted from the overall movie. What did you think, Mike, about the way it was shot in terms of the shots looking like a comic book? It's interesting that you referenced Sin City, because I oftentimes talk about it when we have discussions about film noir in our film history courses. We're typically watching older film noir, double indemnity type films. But I'll mention, of course, as a genre or as a style, if you will, film noir is very, very influential in more recent decades. Outright film noir, uh, you know, in fact, you know, the recently deceased William Hurt and Body Heat, for instance, you know, films like that. But then kicking ahead years after that, films like Sin City which again, have that strong sense of graphic design that you mentioned, and they very much are film noir influence. And the Batman films are as well in a lot of ways, you know, the, the darkness to it, whether, you know, the sharp contrast of light and dark, and actually a lot of dark more than light, the, some of the sharp angles, uh, really a, a, an almost German expressionist sensibility with the, the mise-en-scene and, and the production design overall. So I concur there. And I agree only to the limited extent that there are individual sequences that work quite well simply uh, in terms of the visual palette. For me, though, it amounts to a kind of visual overkill after a while. And this gets back to the point where we do agree that you don't need three hours to do all that. In terms of the characters themselves, I also agree with you that some of the side stories, some of the secondary characters kind of meander. They don't quite get fully developed. They're they're, they're sort of laid out uh, and then just sort of left. I think that's partly just because there's an abundance of secondary characters and, and plots and subplots, and some of those are dangling threads. And I think one reason why some of them dangle, and this is a very cynical observation, but I'll make it anyway, uh, this is a cynical observation that um, oftentimes in films like this, you're always thinking about not even so much the film that you're actually making and that we're watching, but the next one. Almost always sequelitis, right? You're going to lay out some plot elements that get picked up later. But where that ultimately bores me, at least, and admittedly, I'm not a member of the fan club, is that with the Batman story, with the basic dynamics of it in terms of Bruce Wayne and, and in terms of the principal secondary characters, we've had, you know, nine or 10 iterations of this already. So we sort of know the, the groundwork. Where this film is a, a little different or maybe a little more developed uh, is the sense that here we're getting some of the backstories on like Catwoman, uh, on characters that we, that we know very well from uh, some of the other Batman films. But here you sort of see the origins of it. And I think a lot of the films 
in general with superhero stories are starting to do that now because they've sort of mined about as much material as they can. So it's like, well, how did he get that way? And then it, whether the film is actually set in an earlier period or has flashbacks or both, we've been seeing that a lot with, uh, you know, Batman, Spider-Man and so on. What do you think? Yeah, I think you're right on the money with that, Mike, because clearly they're setting you up for the next one. And if that's already understood, I think they could have cut this into two movies and had one movie be about Batman and Catwoman and the other one be about Batman and the Riddler. It's a lot to keep track of. You really have to pay attention or you'll completely lose the the thread of the plot. It's very complicated, which is why it takes three hours to really tell the entire story. But it's challenging to keep all of the threads going in your mind. And I heard somebody refer to this as the bat, the cat, and the rat in terms of this movie. <laughs> it's a lot going on. It's very busy. It's a very busy movie. Well, it is very busy. And sometimes, again, that can kind of, well, let's put, let's put it this way. When a movie is that busy, it can either pull you in completely because you get pulled into this Byzantine plot. And there's a lot of criminal business here late at night and it's murky and rainy and you know, who's this and what's that. So it could pull you in. But by the same token, at least for this viewer, it can make me feel a bit alienated. In other words, I just feel like there's so much going on that it's a, it's almost busy for the sake of busy. You know what I'm getting at? It's kind of relentlessly busy. And those are cases where particularly at almost three hours, it can leave you sort of feeling worn out. Uh, I'm always one for eavesdropping on what people are saying as they exit the theater. I'm not, I'm not holding out a microphone and interviewing them, but my ears are wide open, right? So, you know, uh, when I saw it, I, I saw it at the Senator Theater in Baltimore, so a huge screen and, you know, optimal viewing conditions. And as we were leaving the theater, uh, you know, a young woman turned to her date and, and she had liked it. But she said, boy, that was a long movie. And, and I think even for people who like it, they just feel like it can kind of wear you out a bit. It's just it's too much of your day. I noticed also and this is sort of a funny side note. I was at a matinee of it. And of course, because it's like three well, more than three hours by the time you get trailers and everything else built in. The moment it ended and people quickly left the theater. Well, they stay for the end credits, of course. But then the moment they left the theater, there's a nearby restaurant, which suddenly was mobbed. There was like this long line. Of, These people haven't eaten for hours. <laughs> you know, they are famished. They, they want. They should have had a Batman special or something. You know, come come in after the movie and and, and chow down. Uh, Marie, let me uh, turn it back over to you here because we may want to talk about what I find most interesting relationship in the film is between Batman and I'll call her the uh, the evolving or the nascent Catwoman. Maybe we should talk about that because I think that's actually of of all the secondary characters, she's the one who's most primary, if I can put it that way. Yes, I, I think you're right. We will let's talk about Catwoman, but I did want to mention one quick thing before I forget. The Benji's Drive-In, which is over in Essex, uh, last weekend showed the Batman with Dog, and they made sure to tell people, you know, we're going to have an intermission in the middle of the Batman because it is so long. And they do this with with Bollywood movies when they're in the theater too. I've noticed if something goes on for three or four hours, you know, you you give people a, a break so that by the time, like you were saying. That, the, that it lets out, finally, uh, you don't have this mad dash stampede for the bathroom. So I thought that was a smart move for Benji's to, to uh, say up front, this is a long movie, we're going to break it up, you know, time for everybody to go to the restroom and get some more food, come back and watch. I think that would have been a smarter way to show that movie, just because of that reason. But having said that, Catwoman in this movie is Zoe Kravitz, and I liked her as Catwoman. What did you think, Mike? of Zoe Kravitz as Catwoman. I liked the casting. I, I thought she really was appropriate for that. 
And I like the kind of banter, the kind of interplay between, uh, should I call him Batman or the Batman? It just, I always feel like the article has been sort of the Batman and the cat, not the Catwoman or Catwoman, I don't know. But anyway, um, when they talk back and forth, it is interesting because you really do wonder, you know, they're both crime fighters, if you will, but, but what's their personal relationship going to be here? And will they work as a team and this and that? And that actually sort of held my interest. But where it started to lose my interest is, her character has a lot of potential. And I think the script is kind of fast and loose in certain ways. For instance, this Catwoman makes a quick reference, a slighting reference to what she calls white privilege. And, and I thought that's interesting because, you know, this could be a film that really deals with that. And certainly in terms of the zeitgeist, in terms of, you know, words and, and we use nowadays and things we talk about, you know, white privilege is right out there. And I thought this could be really interesting. But you know what? It sort of comes and goes. It's like it's mentioned and it's never really fully developed. It just seems like in the scripting, it was like a quick, glib, topical reference, right? So the topical reference is there. But if you really want to pursue it, think about the fact then that, well, Bruce Wayne, a.k.a. the Batman, he is a, a white billionaire Avenger. He, he, you know, he's a vigilante. And that doesn't always have positive associations. Uh, some of the characters in the film speak slightingly of him for that, you know, the fact that he's a, a vigilante. But when you think about his privilege, you think about, he, you know, okay, he's an orphan, but he's a rich orphan. And this does get mentioned, actually, in, in the script. It's developed to some extent. But I don't think it's like fully tapped. I think it, it's kind of mentioned quickly and then just flies by. Because if we applied that kind of scrutiny to him, our protagonist, our hero, our, our Batman, or the, our, our the Batman, if we really applied it stringently, we would look on him in a less kindly way, wouldn't we? Because he's, you know, okay, he's orphaned, we should feel sorry for him, he's had some bad breaks, this and that, but he's a very rich orphan, and, and even now when he's brooding, he's always on top of a skyscraper brooding, looking out over the horizon, doesn't have, you know, dates, doesn't have good relationships, doesn't go to the supermarket, whatever, I mean, just that he's sort of by himself there. The fact that, well, but he is privileged. He is quite literally at the top of the world, if you will. But that's never really presented by the filmmakers in somehow, if not a negative light, at least an examining light. It just seems to me that, that the, 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 you know, the privilege reference hits and it does to some extent get worked into the script. But then it kind of just like, you know, filters out. It just becomes diffuse and it's not really, frankly, an important part of the story at some point. How do you feel about that? Because it seems to me it would have made, for me at least, a much more interesting film if it really had, a, okay, if you're going to mention that, let's deal with it, you know? Let's not, let's not nervously dance around it and then let it go. Let's deal with it. Well, I'm afraid that they actually did shoot enough to develop that idea, and that was the four-hour version of this movie. Oh, I see. <laughs> Something had to give. We should talk about Robert Pattinson as the Batman, and, and you know, we keep joking about that, but isn't it interesting that it is... Usually you say Batman and Catwoman, but it's the Riddler and the Penguin. I just, you know, just from an English language standpoint, it's interesting that, you know, the characters, some of them come with thes already. They gave Batman a the. But this Batman is Robert Pattinson, who a lot of people know from the Twilight movies. But I always thought he could handle a role like this after seeing The Lighthouse, which I thought was just an amazing film. I'm really surprised he didn't get more recognition for that movie but i don't know how many people actually saw that movie i think he makes a great batman he's got a great voice he's got the physical presence i can see him taking on that mantle for several more movies and doing a pretty good job of it of course everybody wants to get a role like this that you can exploit as long as you can in terms of your career but i wanted to mention that they say that the inspiration for this version of bruce wayne is kurt cobain 
and they do use some of his music throughout the movie, which I actually kind of little, found a little bit jarring. I like the idea of him sort of being like a Kurt Cobain-esque character, but I thought the, the musical motif was overkill. It kind of took me out of the story a little bit. It's very distracting. It's one thing to know that somehow implicitly there's there's a Kurt Cobain vibe here. And, and I, I can live with that. I'm fine with that. But I agree with you absolutely that when you have the actual music, doesn't it lift? Because we're in Gotham City, right? And, and it, it, it more or less relates to New York City, more or less relates to a reality we recognize. But you don't want to become too specific with that. Because think about it. There are any number of um, policemen and politicians and whatnot that we do meet, most of them villainous or at least somewhat corrupt. There only, there's only like one really good cop in this movie. So, so we do meet a lot of people. But imagine if they were name checked in a way that it, like you suddenly got the name of a real life mayor or police commissioner or just some cultural figure. Wouldn't that pull you out of you know, the graphic world of, of Gotham? And, and it, it just becomes too overtly a reference to our reality. Maybe that, and that's not exactly what I was getting at with the, the Catwoman reference to white privilege, but it's borderline in the sense that you have to decide at that point how you're going to develop material like that that becomes closer to our everyday reality. And, and uh, you're absolutely right, Marie, when you have Kurt Cobain actually there, you know, at least in your ears, it is absolutely uh, completely distracting in that sense. Back to your original point, uh, Rob Pattinson is well cast in this role. He has the kind of brooding, sculpted face you want, whether masked or unmasked. So visually, it, it, it's striking that way. In terms of the franchise, I agree with you. you we, we could see him going on to do at least a few of these, these films. Now, whether that's a good move career-wise or not, on the face of it, it's a good career move. It's a lot of money for him. It's a lot of recognition, you know, major stardom and all that. By the same token, as you mentioned, when you mentioned Lighthouse, like a smaller film he was in, he definitely has acting talent, certainly acting potential. But I think from the start of his career, going back to Twilight, he was one of those actors who was sort of in an awkward situation. We should all be in such an awkward situation. But the awkward situation being you're in a big box office film or series. What do you do next? Do you do more big, what Marie likes to call popcorn movies with all the popcorn behind her there? Uh, do you keep making the big commercial films or do you alternate between like those popcorn movies and more serious, meaning smaller films, which might get you an Oscar nomination, things like that? I think the risk for Pattinson now is if once you get pulled into a superhero cycle it can be a little difficult to pull out of it. But if you're not careful, you become a big box office star. And it seems to me that Batman or the Batman as a character is somewhat limiting because, you know, he's already expressed pretty much all he can express by way of standing on top of a skyscraper and brooding. You know, if you're just doing more of the same in the next movie, you get a huge paycheck, but it doesn't exactly push you as an actor. Sometimes how many actors take on the role of Batman? Because as a child, they really liked Batman. I read something where Robert Pattinson was talking about doing the audition for the role. And, he, you know, he snuck a selfie of himself in the costume, you know, just in case he didn't get it. You know, he wanted to be able to remember, you know, at one point I, I could have been Batman or almost was Batman. So I kind of suspect he went into this thinking this would be really cool for all the reasons that, you know, little kids think that superheroes are cool. You get to actually be one. But I do wonder what will happen with his career if he's going to now. I don't want to say waste his time making more Batman movies because I think he's a better actor than that, but for lack of a better way of putting it. Although, you know, maybe he's thinking this is the time where I can really make some money and I can get back to more artistic roles later. 
But see, the risk here is, do you get back to those roles? It's not just a matter of personal volition, like I, as an actor, want to do a small, impressive, arty film. It's also what roles you're being offered, you know, and then also by way of public recognition or acceptance, what does the public want to see you in? See, I mean, those are things that, to only a limited extent, are within your control. At a certain point, you can become sort of trapped within that, and, you know, you're a big movie star, but people may not take you as seriously as an actor, And then, you know, producers don't think to offer you certain roles or you get a small role like that. I don't mean small role, but you get a a small arty film. And yet, you know, it doesn't really go over as well as you might want it to because that's not what the public associates with. And I, I know I'm troubleshooting it in a sort of pejorative sense here, but I'm just saying that, you know, when you're an actor... On the face of it, it's great to be in a a big superhero movie and it it bolsters your career. But, you know, there's some worrisome concerns as to, well, what next or or what other options would you have after that? But the way this is set up, and and we're not going to spoil anything in terms of how the film plays out, but it's no big surprise that, you know, people will sit through the end credits. And, you know, because the final scenes and then certainly through, through the end credits, you know that almost always there are things to not just prompt you, but really like nudge you, nudge you like a sharp elbow in the side that this, this ain't the end of it. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to see this more. So you can just sort of assume that, you know, he's, if he's not already signed on, he will be shortly. And, and, you know, you look at the box office here and how could you say no to it? Right. I mean, sure. I'll take the big paycheck. So if you want to be in a Batman movie, your best move career-wise is one of the sidekicks. I think Zoe Kravitz has a real chance of doing other things after doing Catwoman. It shows a certain kind of range. But what I really wanted to mention was Andy Serkis as Alfred. You know, you really want that kind of Michael Caine career where you can show up in everything and have a small role and everybody likes seeing you because you're so engaging. And I thought Andy Serkis was amazing as Alfred and he's always great. You know, he's always good, but, you know, it's sort of a mixed bag with some of the other actors in secondary roles. Like, for instance, Colin Farrell, no slouch as an actor. And, you know, as the Penguin, he's encased in so much makeup (laughs) that you have to remind yourself who that is. So sometimes you have actors where you really get a sense of the acting chops of of what this actor is doing with the role. But sometimes in in a superhero movie like this, by the time you get the, the costume and the prosthetics and all that on, you can sort of get lost in it. And and not that that happens to Robert Pattinson necessarily as Batman, but there are cases where there are scenes where it's really the uh, the, the outfit, the uniform that, that's acting. You know what I'm getting at? When you mentioned earlier, you mentioned, you know, striking scenes where, you know, with the profile there against the skyline and, and sort of almost devilish horns going up some... Is that acting? Well, that that's posing. And I think that is sometimes a problem in a film like this where you're playing, you know, a frankly cartoonish character. And by the time you get the, the makeup and all the prosthetic effects and all the costuming, uh, even a good actor sometimes can get sort of lost or, or swallowed up within that. There are some good performances here. And I think it's not coincidental that sometimes when they, they play characters who are most fully human, if you will, like John Turturro plays a, a mobster, you know, a mob figure here. And he's very good. I mean, you know, I've always liked him as an actor. He's very good here. But he's always like recognizably, you know, a made guy, a, you know, a, a gang member, a gang leader in, in New York and so on. And he plays it pretty straight the way you would if you were in a, a totally live action, non-special effects movie. Right. And, and that's where you see the actor really coming through. But how do you feel about that, Marie? Because there are cases like where Colin Farrell, I don't want to say seems wasted, but I could imagine any number of actors doing that same role. Yeah, that's why I think it would have been better had they broken the sidekick characters, you know, and made two movies out of this three-hour thing. I think it would have been better for the storyline and in terms of developing those those side characters. Um, I did want to mention, I, I read that this version of the Riddler was based on 
the Zodiac Killer, which I thought was, you know, once I read that, it was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. While I was watching it, I thought this reminds me of something. And when I realized it was the Zodiac Killer, I thought that was actually pretty clever. There's a lot of things that are really clever that are lost in the fact that there's just so much going on and you want to follow everything, but it's three hours of a lot of details. It's also three hours of a lot of violence. And, and although I was intrigued by the connection with the Zodiac Killer, and you're right, I mean, it has thematic reverberations that, that are interesting. I was also troubled by it. And I don't want to sound puritanical because goodness knows I watch a lot of uh, R-rated movies that really push the envelope in various ways. This movie, The Batman, is rated PG-13. But you know what? It really is borderline R at times because particularly with the Riddler, there are crimes committed. There are things that happen that really are rather graphic. You mentioned graphic design. This is graphic, graphic violence and so on. And, and I thought the film sometimes was excessive with that. It really was, not that it got into what I call saw territory, you know, that kind of really sadistic, really extreme, but don't you think, Marie, there are scenes where it really kind of like flirts with or verges on that? Yes, I do. And I think that's meant to create some climactic moments and there's just so many of them, and it really is relentless. I, I make it sound like I didn't like this movie. I, I actually did like it very much. I think it's one of the better Batmans, and you should definitely see it in the theater for the cinematography, if nothing else. Let's turn to a movie that we both didn't care for particularly, <laughs> which, which is Sundown. It stars Tim Roth. I met Tim Roth once at the Telluride Film Festival, always liked him as an actor, and certainly in terms of public recognition, going back to the two Quentin Tarantino movies, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, the public has known him. This is one of his smaller, uh, artier films, and to elucidate why we didn't care for it much, I'll turn it over to Marie. Well, the movie is called Sundown, and you saw it in the theater, and I saw it on Amazon Prime. And I wanted to see it because I really like Charlotte Gainsbourg, who's in it. And what struck me when I was watching it was the similarity it had in terms of the feel of it and the themes to another movie with Olivia Coleman in it that is out. And I think it's on Netflix called The Lost Daughter. And it's up for some awards and she's amazing in it. They're both movies about characters that are hard to understand. You don't know why they're doing what they do. And they are not very likable. And that is what I think sinks the movie, because you're waiting for the whole movie to find out the reveal. Like, why, why do people behave in this way? And it takes the entire movie to get there. And once you finally get there, you're like, oh, okay, well, that solves that mystery. But the journey between point A and point B is tedious. What do you think? Very Mike? tedious. Uh, Tim Roth plays a British heir to a fortune and he's vacationing with his sister and her two children in Acapulco. And they're staying in a swank hotel and so on. And without getting into the mechanics of the story, he's so alienated from his own family and, and just in general that he just kind of drifts. His, in fact, the original title for the film was Driftwood. He just kind of drifts his way through the film. Uh, unlike Batman, which is almost three hours, this movie's only 83 minutes. But you know what? It's a long 83 minutes because it's a very thin script. And it just sort of meanders its way through. There's not much character development. You never get a very full sense of the Tim Roth character. And when you do, you don't really like him particularly. Not that you always have to like the central figure, but there's just nothing appealing, nothing that would draw you into this. I mean, I, I assume you agree with this. It's just boring after a while. Yeah, it's funny how this is 83 minutes and it was much harder to sit through than the three hours of The Batman. But I did hear this described as an existential mystery. I think that maybe is a little bit too kind towards the intent of the movie. I think it was trying more to be something thought-provoking and atmospheric 
but I think it failed at both. Well, the existential mystery is why was it made? Yes. Yes, you are absolutely right. Why was it made? I do find myself when I watch arty movies sometimes thinking, you know, somebody had to sign off on this. Somebody had to convince people to fund this. And, you know, get actors like Tim Roth and Charlotte Gainsbourg, you know, no slouches in terms of making movies. They certainly know what to do with the movie and how to. I don't think there's anything wrong with the acting. I think just the story and the choice. I just I have no idea why why they made this movie. Any final thoughts on that, Mike? So what we're saying is, in effect, you don't need to watch Sundown. And in fact, you know, it's an example of a film that I say gives art films a bad name. You know, much as I love art films, something got a pretentious film like this that really, really just doesn't work. Yes, pretentious. That's the word. Yes, it is very pretentious. Good intentions, though, I think. And I like the actors in it. It's just a it's a shame. It's such a miss. But that does bring us to the end of our episode. Don't forget to check out our other episodes on dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Pandora and Spotify. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio. 